Hello, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. And we hope this message will help you grow in your walk with Christ. And if you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so by visiting theroadfc.org and click on the giving link. Uh, this morning, we start a brand new series um, called Finding Jesus in Genesis. Um, and so uh, um, what I want to do is I want to begin um, a series on Genesis in the Gospel of Luke. <laughs> Which makes total sense, right? Uh, so let's, let's begin in the Gospel of Luke, and you might think that I'm cheating, but I promise that I'm going somewhere. I need to set a little bit of a foundation for, uh, for how we can find Jesus in Genesis. So let me first set the scene. I'm going to be in Luke chapter 24, but here's the scene. It is the evening of the very first Easter. Uh, Jesus has been resurrected, and there are two disciples that are walking on a little dirt road uh, from the town of Jerusalem to a little town of Emmaus. And historians think it's about an eight-mile walk or so. Now, as these two disciples are walking, they are joined by someone whom they don't recognize, but we as readers of Luke 24 are told that it is, in fact, the resurrected Christ. Um, and so it's the story of the Emmaus Road, the resurrected Jesus on a journey uh, with two disciples and here's what it says in Luke chapter 24, beginning or with verse 27. I want to read 27, and then I want to read um, 44. But Luke 24, 27 says, Then, beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he, that is Jesus, interpreted to them all the things about himself in all of the scriptures. All right. And then skip forward to verse 44. Then he said to them, uh, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. What we find in the story of the Emmaus Road is Jesus giving disciples an interpretive lens through which they should read their scriptures. And that is that they should read the scriptures through the lens of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Amen? In fact, I would say to you, uh, church, that this is what it means to read the Bible as Christians. That as Christians, we need an interpretive center for when we come to the scriptures. Because, and we have found this to be true throughout history, the Bible can be used to justify just about anything you want, right? If you want to pluck a verse out of somewhere in the scriptures, you can find that verse to justify uh, whatever, pretty much whatever action you would want. And so we need an interpretive center. And I would argue that the Christian reading of scripture is to read all of the scriptures through the interpretive lens of Jesus Christ. This is what it means to read the Bible as Christians. So let me set this foundation up a little bit more. Um, 
We, we read all of the scriptures in the light of Jesus, who is the word of God, which means when we go into the Old Testament, we read it with Jesus as our guide, looking for ways in which Jesus was prefigured, foreseen, or anticipated in the ancient stories of the Old Testament. This is the Christian way of reading scriptures. And we get this tradition from Jesus himself. Jesus gives us the tradition of reading the scriptures through the interpretive lens of Christ. Let me remind you at this point, in fact, uh, that what we know as the Old Testament was, in fact, the scriptures. That was the Bible for the very first Christians because the New Testament was currently being written, right? So when they talk about reading the scriptures, they were reading what we know as the Old Testament. And so the scriptures, that is the words of God, are written in order that they might lead us to the living word of God, who is Christ. And for the first several generations of Christians, as I've said, the, their Bible was in fact what we know as the Old Testament. And yet, they confessed Jesus Christ as Lord. And so they were Christians... And so they read their Bibles, that is, they read the Old Testament in light of Christ and noticed all the ways in which these stories anticipate the ministry that Jesus was going to bring. So, for example, they would look at the creation story and say, Jesus is the word of God that called creation into being. They would read the flood narrative and say, Jesus is the ark that rescues us. They would retell the story of Jacob and say that Jesus is the ladder that connects heaven and earth. This is how scripture is to be read, for that is how they were taught to do it by Jesus himself. And we find that in the in the uh, Emmaus Road story. So Jesus is the interpretive center of the scriptures. Are you with me? Now, having Jesus as the interpretive center of reading the scriptures saves us from at least two mistakes. And I'm going to go a little more teachy than preachy this morning, if that's okay. So uh, kind of put on your thinking caps. The whole thing this morning is, a, is more kind of teaching oriented than it is uh, preaching oriented. But, but having Jesus as the interpretive center saves us from at least two mistakes. First, it saves us from a Jekyll and Hyde view of God. Here's what I mean by that. It's really popular to see God as a kind of Jekyll and Hyde. That is, God starts off kind of angry and goes about the Old Testament stuff, right? <laughs> the, the images of God that we get that are pretty violent, we say, okay, that's, that's one version of God, but maybe that didn't work so well. It wasn't really great at changing hearts. And so God then uh, comes to us as the person of Jesus of Nazareth, and he begins to preach grace and forgiveness and things uh, and peace. Uh, and, and that worked pretty well, but then one day God is going to have to get real serious again and pour out terrible violence on all the bad people while saving all of the good people, right? Jekyll and Hyde kind of view of God. Um, the problem with this view uh, is, number one, Jesus doesn't operate as the interpretive center of the scriptures for us, right? 
We've just said that Jesus himself gave us a tradition of going into what we know as the Old Testament with Jesus as our sponsor, as the interpretive lens through which we should understand all of this. So it doesn't work with that. But the other thing it does, the other problem with that kind of view is that it goes against the core Christian commitment. One of the core Christian commitments, which is God is immutable. There's a fancy word, right? Immutable means does not mutate. And one of the core tenets or commitments of Christianity is that God doesn't mutate. God doesn't change who God is. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if God is this and then that, then God is changing. So what Jesus does is Jesus anchors our view of who God is as the full revelation of God. Amen? Jesus is the full revelation of God and anchors our view of who God is. What is God like? God is like Jesus. Okay? And we can go into the Old Testament with that core commitment and then begin to read those ancient stories and say, okay, how do we understand this in light of Jesus? Okay, the second thing that Jesus as the interpretive center saves us from is it saves us from thinking that the Old Testament is all the pre-Jesus stuff that we kind of need to just get to or wade through in order to get to Jesus, right? Uh, one mistake that... Christians can often make is, okay, the Old Testament is sort of this uh, tangential stuff. It's not really necessary. It doesn't really count. We just kind of got to wade through it, be somewhat familiar with the story, but then we really get started when we get to Jesus. Um, that is to say that maybe we can pour, we, maybe we can pull some moralistic lessons out of the Old Testament, um, but we, we might get by with mostly ignoring it, um, and that's not true. So it saves us from that mistake, and it says it brings us to a commitment that Jesus is intimately tied to the story of ancient Israel, um, and that because, and that we can see in the scriptures that Jesus is present all the way through, because that's how we read the Bible as Christians. Amen. Okay, <laughs> I think we're mostly there, uh, and that's okay. Uh, let, me, let me plug some life groups here. This is a great opportunity. If you have questions or you want to wrestle with these kind of things, a uh, life group is a great way to do that because oftentimes if we're just kind of left in our own heads, we can take lots of rabbit trails here and there, and, and let's share those rabbit trails in a group and, and kind of help bring some sense of understanding. So, uh, and the, our life groups are always working through the sermonic material. <laughs> That's a cool word too, huh? Sermonic material based on the sermon. I, I'm feeling quite fancy today. I don't know why, but I'm like, uh, I might bring out some more words that I don't understand. Okay. So now let's, let's turn to Genesis then. So that's our foundation. We read the scriptures as Christians with the interpretive lens of Jesus, with the expectation then that we can find Jesus in every page of scripture. And that's part of what this little series is about. Uh, we're doing the All Saints service next week, two more Sundays of Jesus in Genesis after that, and then we're in Advent. So three parts to finding Jesus in Genesis. And, but let's begin with creation. Genesis chapter one, verse one. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was formless, was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep. 
while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. And then God said, let there be light. And there was light. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, staying with our teaching mode, in the first three verses of the Bible, you not only have Jesus, which we'll see, but you also have the whole Trinity. God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son. Verse 1 says, In the beginning, God. Have you ever noticed or have you ever thought about the fact that the Bible does not seek to prove the existence of God? The Bible assumes the existence of God. And so kind of going to the scriptures to try to prove the existence of God is at best a cyclical argument, but at worst a philosophically weak one, right? Because the scriptures themselves assume the existence of God. Now, there's a big possible rabbit trail here about philosophical ideas about the existence of God. One thing that I find convincing is that just the very idea of a divine being gives credence to the existence of a divine being. If something were totally absent, we wouldn't have a notion of it, really. And so the fact that all of humanity has had some sort of notion of a divine being, I think, points to pretty good evidence that there probably is a divine being. I don't know if you find that convincing or not, but I simply want to point out that in the beginning, God, the scriptures assume the existence of God. In the beginning, God, this is God the Father. Verse 2, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Now, the word for wind here is a Hebrew word called ruach. You've got to get the little at the end, okay? Ruach. It's the Hebrew word. Uh, it means uh, wind. It means breath. It also means spirit. And so in verse two, 1, you have God the Father. In verse 2, you have God the Spirit. And then verse 3, then God said. By verse 3, God has something to say. And this is where we find Jesus. We as Christians confess Jesus as the word of God. So when God said, if we're reading this through the lens of Christ, we can be confident that Jesus is the word of God. So in the beginning, God and the spirit moved and the word said. Where is the first place that we find Jesus in Genesis? Right there in verse 3, as the very agent of creation. Jesus, the eternal word of God, is the agent of creation. Now, this is certainly how the very first Christians would have understood this passage. Remember, they were taught by Jesus himself to read all of the scriptures in light of Jesus. That's what they, the two disciples learned on the Emmaus Road. And so Jesus gives us this tradition. And we can certainly say that this is how the very first Christians read the creation story from their scriptures that we know as Genesis chapter 1, verse 3 Right Then God said they would have certainly understand that this is Jesus. And how do you know that, Pastor Andy? Well, because the very first Christians wrote about it. 
The very first Christians read this passage in light of Christ, saw Jesus as the agent of creation because they wrote about it. John begins his gospel with a new creation account, which is an echo of Genesis 1. Now, interestingly enough, here's another little rabbit trail. John frames his entire gospel according to new creation. It begins with a new creation account and it ends with resurrection. And you remember the story where Mary turns and sees Jesus and thinks he's the gardener. And it's like, this is a new creation. Remember how we've talked about that a lot, a lot, a lot through the years at Emmaus, right? And so from the very beginning, it's bookended with this theme of new creation. But here's, how, here's what he writes in his retelling, his echo of Genesis 1. It, it's almost as if John is saying, now that we understand creation a little bit more, uh, we can say it more clearly than Genesis 1 does. So he says, let me offer this as a creation account of my own. And he writes this, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and all things came into being through him, and without him, not one thing came into being. There you go. Well, who or what is this word of God? Well, he tells us in verse 14, and the word became flesh and lived among us. We have seen his glory and the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. As Christians, we should understand that Jesus does not come thousands or perhaps millions of years after creation. No, Jesus is the word Jesus as the word of God is the creator. This is the claim of the gospel of John. Jesus is the creative agent in creation. And so when we read about the life, miracles, and interactions of Jesus of Nazareth, we are reading about the creator. Now, here's, here's an interesting point. The word that, that the gospel writer John uses for capital W word, the word that he uses for word, <laughs> is the word, the Greek word, logos. The Greek word, logos. And logos is an interesting word, just like ruach, but logos is an interesting word because it means word, as in little w, like a word. Uh, but it also means, but it's much more than that. It's much bigger than that. So this word logos also means wisdom or, or idea or logic. So we could say it this way. Jesus is the wisdom of God. Or Jesus is the logic of God. That Jesus is the very person that makes sense of God. Wow. Right? When you start to understand the very layers of this Greek word that John uses, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God, and then the Logos became flesh. What this teaches us and what this shows us, church, is that Jesus is what theologians call co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. In other words, it's not like God had a plan and then that plan kind of went haywire and he said, and God was up there like, oh no, what do I do? Oh, how about Jesus as kind of plan B or like a, the next new idea? This is not the case. Jesus is co-eternal and co-equal with God. He was right there in the beginning as the creative agent 
in all of creation. Jesus is the wisdom of God. Jesus is the logic of God. Jesus is the Word, capital W, of God. Pastor and author Brian Zahn says it this way, Jesus is what God has to say. I like that. Now, the Apostle Paul goes on and actually affirms this understanding. He writes this in Colossians chapter 1, quote, He is the image of the invisible God. He, referencing Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, he is the invisible image, or he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all of creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created. And all things visible and visible, whether invisible, thrones or dominions, or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is the agent of creation, and he is the sustaining agent of creation. This thing keeps going because the very logic of God, the wisdom of God, the word of God, Jesus, the eternal Christ is kind of holding it together. Are you with me? This is a little more cosmic than our brains are used to thinking, right? So you might say, but I have this finely nuanced question about that, Pastor Andy, and I would say, I don't fully know there is a mystery to it all. But the confession of the Apostle Paul is that not only is Jesus the creative agent in creation, he's the sustaining agent in creation. That this whole thing is holding together by the very word of God. And so Jesus, the Christ, the eternal word of God, is the creator. And this is so good. Which means before Jesus was a carpenter, he was a creator of the cosmos. Thank you, Daniel. Whoa. Right? Some, most of you did that. I'm confident most of you did that. You just didn't do it out loud. <laughs> Jesus, before he was a carpenter, was the very creator of the cosmos. Let's take a moment just to allow that to sink in. A humble carpenter in the little nowhere town of Nazareth is the very agent of creation. This shows us the humility of God. The one who possesses and holds all rights and all power is willing to let those go in order to become a servant. Okay, now let's get into Genesis 1 a little bit. So we recognize with the first place we find Jesus in Genesis is as the agent of creation, the very word of God, the logic of God. Uh, and so what we find then through the rest of Genesis 1 is an, is an account of creation that is filled with harmony and balance. Okay, so let's do a little review. If you grew up in the church and you grew up in Sunday school, let's do a little bit of review of the order of creation. Day one, there's light and dark. Day two, there's sky and water. Day three, there's land and plants. Day four, sun, moon, and stars. Day five, bird and fish. Day six, animals and humans. Okay? That's the creation account as we're given in Genesis chapter one. And there is so much beauty behind this uh, this poetic structure. Uh, I've said a number of those things about it through the years, but today what I simply want to point out is I want you to notice the harmony of the text. That in this poetic narrative telling of creation, there is beautiful balance 
and wonderful harmony in all of creation. There's beautiful balance as the Word of God, Jesus, separates and fills. Where there was chaos and disorder, the Word brings harmony and order. And there's a relationship between the days. What Christ separates on day one, light and dark, he fills on day four, sun, moon, and stars. What Christ separates on day two, sky and water, is filled on day five, bird and fish. What Christ separates on day three, land and plants, is then filled on day six, animals and humans. There's, sep- there's this, this beauty of, of separating, bringing th- that which is in, in cha- all in chaos, bringing order, bringing uh, harmony, and then there is filling, a, 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 a filling up of this good creation. Now the, the madness, the chaos has been ordered. Now I want to fill it and bless it. Are you with me? Right? And so like this, this poem is just like in like an onion, just peel the layers back. There's more, there's more, there's more. There's incredible beauty, fantastic meaning, all of that. But for all the things that are present in the poem, today I want to talk about not that which is present, but that which is absent. What isn't here? And what isn't here is there's no dualism between good and evil. And this is completely and totally unique to the Christian narrative of creation. So in other words, Genesis 1 is not the only creation narrative in the world. In fact, in the ancient world, there are all sorts of other creation stories that were floating around that were trying to make sense of the world in which we live. And in those poems, um, evil is always present right from the beginning. There's always a dualism between good and evil. In fact, lots of ancient creation narratives went something like this. There was a good being and there was an evil being and they battled it out. And during the battle, creation happened. And so creation in those narratives, creation is born out of conflict. Creation is born out of violence and war. Creation is born out of anger between these two beings. But in the biblical narrative, completely unique in all of the ancient world, you have not a dualism between good and evil, but you have a creation where evil is not present, where evil has not yet arrived in the story, where you have this this thing that is called good over and over and over. At the end of each day, you get a refrain in the creation narrative that we have in our scriptures. Do you know what it is? And God saw that it was good. So you have light and dark, and it was good. Sky and water, it was good. Land and plants, it was good. Sun, moon, stars, it was good. Bird and fish, it was good. Animals and humans, it was good. And then, then you get to Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. God looked over all of creation and said, it is very good. Good, 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 very good. <laughs> right? Here's what I want you to see. In the biblical narrative, all of creation springs out of goodness. I know it feels like the world is falling apart. 
I know that it feels like things are completely chaotic. Yes and amen, I am right there with you. But as Christians, we can lean into the text and recognize Jesus is present right here at the beginning, bringing order and goodness. All of creation springs out of goodness. So Christ is the, is the creator and creation is declared good. And what that means for us is that our posture as Christians toward creation should be one of awe, one of respect, and one of care. That we should treat creation with respect, out of respect for the creator. That to be in awe of creation is to worship the creator. To be in awe of creation is to worship the creator. To be inspired by the beauty of creation is to behold the beauty of the creator. Now they are distinct from one another. But, too often, but we don't want to separate the two too much. Right? That creator and creation are intimately connected. They're not the same. They're distinct from one another. God is above and over creation as the creator, right? And yet creation is absolutely filled with the fingerprints of God. This is why so many people can go into nature and have a mystical or spiritual experience, often, often lacking language to even describe it. That, that when in nature, they experienced some sense of the divine. And for those who are Christians, they might say, yes, this is God who is revealed in Jesus, and Jesus is the creator. For others, they may not have the language. But the reality remains the same, that they have experienced the divine in nature because it points us to the creator. That nature is crowned with the glory of God, points us to God's beauty, which is to say that in a very real way, we live in a holy temple created by Christ. You thought about that? We live in a holy temple created by Christ. Now let's be honest for a moment. Creation springs out of goodness. Yeah. Amen. That's awesome. I can knew you were doing that silently in your seats. <laughs> Genesis 3 is a very real part of the story, which is where sin and evil enters the picture. That we ourselves, as part of creation, have become corrupted by sin, but also creation itself is corrupted by sin. That, that the effect of sin is not just in our hearts, but in creation, as, has filtered its way into the very creation itself. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, that creation is crying out, moaning for the, the, the uh, revealing of the Redeemer. That, that creation itself is under the effect of sin and needs to be redeemed. And so, as long as we're talking about the goodness of creation, that is marred and scarred by sin, yes, absolutely, we also need to recognize Christ is not just the creator of creation. Christ is the redeemer of creation. Amen? That Christ, the creator, is Christ the redeemer. There's a popular stream of eschatology. Eschatology is a fancy word for our understanding of the end. 
how this whole thing is going to play out. There's a popular stream of eschatology that says that God is going to abandon all of this in favor of a disembodied spiritual existence in the sky. Uh, But to affirm that would be to deny the creator Christ revealed to us in Genesis. That Christ, the creator, is also Christ the redeemer. The one who creates us is the one who has promised to make all things new. Creation bears the weight and scars of sin in the same way that we do. Of that, there is no doubt. And just like Christ redeems us, so Christ will redeem his good creation. Amen? Amen. So here's what I want you to do this week. If our posture toward the world or toward creation is to be one of awe, respect, care, out of respect for the creator, this week, as the fall colors are bursting all around our city, I want you to take a few moments to take it in. Slow down from the busyness of our lives and just notice the beauty all around you. Uh, Maybe not while you're driving. Watch the road. Um, But maybe a little bit while you're driving because there's beauty all around, right? But take a moment to take it all in. Maybe go for a walk in a natural area. Join us in a couple of weeks. Maybe marvel at the beauty in your own backyard. Worship the Creator by standing in awe of creation. In fact, I was driving in this morning, early this morning, and um, when I'm coming in, I always take the, early in the mornings, I always take the Parkwood Estates entrance into the church, and I was noticing that those trees are fully golden, right in the parking lot that we share. Uh, So rather than exiting out, the Mayus entrance, maybe drive just through the parking lot and enjoy the beauty of the trees that are fully golden and see in the beauty of the trees in the fall, the beauty of Christ, the creator. Amen. Let me say a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this time of year, uh, for the beauty of the place that we live in Colorado. And recognizing, God, while Colorado has a unique kind of beauty, so does every single spot have its own unique beauty as a, as a footprint, as a fingerprint of the very uh, goodness and beauty of God, the Creator, the Word of God, Jesus Christ. May we today affirm as Christians that Jesus, the Son of God, is in fact the eternal Word of God, the very agent of creation. And Lord, Uh, Help us uh, to know what steps we can take to better care and steward creation well. Help us to not take beauty around us for granted, but to pause. Um, Because in pausing in awe of creation is in fact an act of worship. And so Lord, help us to not just contain our worship inside of these walls or the walls of the church, Help us to bring our worship out into the very world that you have created for us. We give you thanks and we give you praise, creator God. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.